Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. It's your host, Joe. This episode basically picks up right where we left off in the last one, and I cover pretty much the events just of July 6, 1863. Of course, as always, like the Facebook page uh, where I post maps and other supplemental information. Uh, Currently, we are in the middle of the 160th anniversary of the Gettysburg Campaign. I'm recording this on the 10th of June, so uh, basically about a week after the campaign officially started. Uh, So I've been posting some extra stuff on there, as well as reposting old episodes, talking about specific day of the events that uh, I covered in those episodes. Yesterday was the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Brandy Station, which I covered all the way back in episode four, which was a very long time ago. Uh, this (laughs) This series has taken me a lot longer to get through than I thought it would. Uh, We are getting very close to the end, maybe a a couple more episodes left, and then maybe a couple bonus episodes that I might do after I finish with the campaign itself. And of course, subscribe to the podcast, rate it five stars if that's an option for you. And without further ado, let's start the show. News of the battle had trickled out of Gettysburg in the first couple of days afterward, but it wasn't until the morning of Monday, July 6th, that the majority of the northern public learned of the results. Newspapers in the great cities of the East published stories from various war correspondents. The New York Times read headlines such as, Splendid Triumph of the Army of the Potomac, The Rebel Pontoon Bridge at Williamsport Destroyed, and The Rebel Retreat Cut Off. One Harrisburg newspaper exaggeratingly claimed, quote, Rebel generals Longstreet and Hill wounded and in our possession, unquote. Later, they would write, quote, Rebel General Longstreet mortally wounded and since dead, and the Rebel General A.P. Hill killed, unquote. I'd say that today journalism is in a fairly sorry state, but things weren't that much better in 1863. When it came to reporting events of the Civil War, facts often took a backseat as newspapers competed to get stories out as quickly as possible. For the most part, the Confederacy would remain in the dark as to what happened at Gettysburg for the next few days, and even longer the further from Richmond you lived. Other northern newspapers were even more hyperbolic in their descriptions of the Union victory. The editor of the Harrisburg Daily Telegraph claimed, quote, The rebellion receives its death stroke, unquote, and a Philadelphia Inquirer headline boastfully declared, quote, Victory! Waterloo eclipsed! Unquote. Even in July of 1863, people were comparing Gettysburg to history's other great battles. While the battle had been a great victory for the Army of the Potomac, the campaign was very much still up in the air. General George Meade's Army of the Potomac had mostly rested over the last 48 hours. Units regrouped, soldiers received rations, some for the first time in days, and officers were promoted to replace fallen leaders. Sergeant James A. Wright of the 1st Minnesota took the time on July 6th to write a letter informing the father of Philip Hamlin that his son had been killed in action. Quote, Dear Sir, it becomes my melancholy duty to write to you concerning your brave boy who has fallen. Sergeant Hamlin of Company F was killed in the fighting near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on the 3rd, instant about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He was hit in four places at the same instant almost. One shot shattered his left leg. Another passed through his thigh, a third through his neck on the right side, and a fourth almost directly through his heart. Sergeant Hamlin was beloved by us all, and with you we mourn his early death. 
Long association has made me love him as a brother, and I miss him badly. We buried him by moonlight near where he fell, under a walnut tree. I marked his grave, sodded it over, and enclosed it with rails. Philip was an earnest and consistent Christian, and I doubt not he is in the better land. We often talked on the subject of death, and I know he was prepared. I took a lock of his hair, thinking you would like it. I know his mother will. Also a bit of our tattered flag, which he loves so well. I know how little consequence words are to the bereaved, but tender you the condolence and sympathy of his comrades in arms. Feeling for you in this severe affliction and praying God to comfort you, I am sincerely yours. James A. Wright, Orderly Sergeant, Company F, 1st Minnesota. Unquote. The Hamlins would suffer another blow the following year when Philip's brother Jacob, a private in the 7th Minnesota, was killed at the Battle of Nashville. Sergeant Henry Taylor, also a member of the 1st Minnesota, wrote his sister following the campaign, informing her of the death of their brother Isaac. Quote, July 3rd, half past 8, a man of Company G was coming up with coffee for some of the officers and saw Isaac lying dead. He told me he thought he saw my brother killed. I went with him to the spot and found it, but too true. Secured his things. Knapsack, haversack, and canteen were gone. He probably threw them off when he went into action. I found a spade and took William E. Cundy and James L. Brown of Company E and went and dug his grave. We laid him down with all his clothes on, as he fell, and spread a shelter or tent over him. As we laid him down, I remarked, Well, Isaac, all I can give you is a soldier's grave. I then sat down on a stone while the two comrades buried him. I was the only one to weep over his grave. His father, mother, brothers and sisters were all ignorant to his death. Unquote. Many such letters to the families of fallen comrades would be sent out in the days following the battle. The Hamlins and Taylors were at least lucky to receive confirmation of the fate of their loved ones, but many were not so fortunate. Hundreds, if not thousands, went missing in the heat of the action or were horribly mangled beyond recognition and couldn't be identified. It left the parents, siblings, wives, and children of dead soldiers wondering what happened to them. Were they killed in action? Were they given a proper burial? Did they die a good death? Now, let's zoom out a little bit. Despite the alleged urging from some, George Meade was not going to rush the army to get in motion until he was certain that the Confederates were in full retreat. When it was reported that the rebels had vacated the positions that they'd held on the 4th, he pushed forward John Sedgwick's 6th Corps toward Fairfield and pursued a Lee's rear guard. After a brief skirmish outside Fairfield, the rebels continued marching toward Monterey Pass, and Sedgwick's troops held their ground. Meade sent a dispatch to Sedgwick after midnight on the 6th that read, quote, After conversation with General Warren, I think under existing circumstances you had better push your reconnaissance so as to ascertain, if practicable, how far the enemy has retreated, and also the character of the gap, and practicability of carrying same, in case I should determine to advance on that line, unquote. He also informed Sedgwick that the 1st and 3rd Corps were under his orders. Though he was still reluctant to get the army fully into motion, he planned to divide the army up into multiple wings, with Uncle John in charge of the army's right wing. On the evening of the 5th, the Union army was still mostly concentrated around Gettysburg. The 6th Corps was the furthest away at Fairfield. The 1st and 3rd were still close to Gettysburg. The 2nd and 12th Corps, along with the artillery reserve, were along the Baltimore Pike between two taverns and Littlestown, Pennsylvania. They would constitute the left wing of the army, under General Slocum. The 11th and 5th Corps were south of Gettysburg, on the Emmitsburg Road. They represented the center wing, under General Howard. That night, Meade received word from General William French that, quote, 500 wagons, rebel, 
guarded by about 150 infantry, 150 cavalry, three pieces of inferior-looking artillery, and from three to 5,000 head of cattle, passed through Hagerstown last night after 11 o'clock. Could not cross the ford at Williamsport, the river being too high. Supposed to have gone to Falling Waters, having started from Williamsport in that direction this morning. The wagons were loaded with sick, wounded, and stores." Unquote. This news might have reassured me to some extent that if the Confederates were retreating, they could not, at least for the moment, cross the Potomac. Sometime after midnight, the army commander took a moment to write a letter to his wife about the events of the past couple of days. Quote, I hardly know when I last wrote to you. So many and such stirring events have occurred. I think I have written since the battle, but am not sure. It was a grand battle, and is in my judgment a most decided victory, though I did not annihilate or bag the Confederate army. This morning they retired in great haste into the mountains, leaving their dead unburied and their wounded on the field. They awaited one day, expecting that, flushed with success, I would attack them when they would play their old game of shooting us from behind breastworks, a game we played this time to their entire satisfaction. The men behaved splendidly. I really think they are becoming soldiers. They endured long marches, short rations, and stood one of the most terrific cannonadings I ever witnessed. Baldy was shot again, and I fear will not get over it. Two horses that George rode were killed, his own and the black mare. I had no time to think of either George or myself, for at one time things looked a little blue, but I managed to get up reinforcements in time to save the day. Unquote. You can tell how mentally exhausted Meade was. He had already written to his wife around midnight on July 4th, but that must have felt like a lifetime ago for the still relatively new army commander. Lack of sleep and the demands of an active campaign were taking a toll on him. Another thing I want to comment on in his letter was Baldy. Baldy was one of Meade's horses. Many higher-ranking officers used multiple horses to prevent too much wear and tear on any particular one, but oftentimes they had a favorite. For Meade, it was Old Baldy. He was around 10 or 11 years old and had served with the army commander going back to his regular army frontier duty days. Over the course of the Civil War, Baldy was wounded multiple times, including at Gettysburg. Meade's fear that he would not recover from this latest bullet wound proved to be unfounded. Baldy spent several months recuperating, but returned to duty for the spring campaigns of 1864. On the morning of July 6, Meade was still not quite sure what to do. In the same letter to his wife that I just read, he wrote, quote, The most difficult part of my work is acting without correct information on which to predicate action, unquote. He'd yet to receive any conclusive intelligence from any of his scouts or cavalry, he hoped that Sedgwick's reconnaissance that day could provide him with the information he sought. Meanwhile, the slow progress of the Army of the Potomac concerned officials in Washington. In a telegram to General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, President Abraham Lincoln voiced his concerns about Meade's recent address to the Army. Quote, I left the telegraph office a good deal dissatisfied. You know I did not like that phrase in Orders Number 68, I believe, drive the invaders from our soil. Since that, I see a dispatch from General French saying the enemy is crossing his wounded over the river in flats, without saying why he does not stop it, or even intimating a thought that it ought to be stopped. Still later, another dispatch from General Pleasanton by direction of General Meade to General French, stating that the main army is halted because it is believed the rebels are concentrating on the road toward Hagerstown, beyond Fairfield, and is not to move until it is ascertained that the rebels intend to evacuate the Cumberland Valley. These things all appear to me to be connected with a purpose to cover Baltimore and Washington, and to get the enemy across the river again without further collision, and they do not appear connected with a purpose to prevent his crossing and to destroy him. 
I do fear that the former purpose is acted upon and the latter is rejected. If you are satisfied the latter purpose is entertained and is judiciously pursued, I am content. If you are not so satisfied, please look into it." Unquote. Here we see that there was definitely a disconnect between the White House and the high command of the army in terms of priorities. President Lincoln clearly had shifted his sights on destroying Lee's army, whereas Meade was still acting under the belief that his main goal was to protect the nation's capital in Baltimore. This contradiction in priorities would cause all sorts of problems in the coming weeks and months. While the Army awaited orders for its future movements, Quartermaster General of the U.S. Army, General Montgomery C. Meggs, and Chief Quartermaster of the Army of the Potomac, General Rufus Ingalls, worked diligently behind the scenes to keep the Army supplied. Meggs was a 47-year-old West Pointer and career Army engineer. Before the Civil War, he'd worked under then-Lieutenant Robert E. Lee, performing engineering projects on the Mississippi River, and later led construction projects of the Washington Aqueduct and the enlargement of the U.S. Capitol building. After Quartermaster General Joseph E. Johnston resigned his Army commission and joined Confederate forces, Meggs was named his replacement. Rufus Ingalls was 42, a fellow West Pointer and an antebellum cavalry officer. Earlier in the Civil War, he served on the staff of the former commander of the Army of the Potomac, General George B. McClellan. His work keeping the massive army supply during the Peninsula Campaign led to his promotion to Chief Quartermaster. Supply and logistics were areas of warfare where the Union had a decided upper hand on the Confederates. Some of this was based on material advantages, but it was also due in part to the superior quality of their quartermaster officers such as Meggs and Ingalls. Both worked tirelessly in the days after the Battle of Gettysburg to get the army back up to full strength. They were especially in desperate need of horses. On the 6th, Meggs reassured Ingalls, quote, 2,000 cavalry horses have left Washington for Frederick, and that several cars from 100 to 275 horses in each car on their way to the army, unquote. He sent a second dispatch later that day, informing the chief quartermaster, quote, 5,000 fresh horses will be on their way to Frederick from Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Harrisburg, Indianapolis, and Detroit. 170 more will be sent tomorrow from Chicago, unquote. This is quite an impressive logistical feat, particularly for the 19th century. Elsewhere on the periphery of the campaign, a few seemingly minor incidents occurred near Harper's Ferry that are worth mentioning. Two days earlier, Meade had ordered General William French to send troops in order to occupy Fox's, Turner's, and Crampton's gaps in South Mountain to deprive the rebels of using them. He also instructed French to send a force toward Maryland Heights on the north bank of the Potomac opposite Harper's Ferry. French had Brigadier General John Reese Kenley lead an expedition to the Heights. Kenley was a 45-year-old Baltimore-based lawyer and Mexican War veteran. Upon their arrival, they found a small force of Confederate infantry, but their superior numbers allowed them to easily drive off the rebel force. In addition to Kenley, Captain Henry Albert led a company of the 1st Maryland Cavalry Battalion, better known as Cole's Cavalry, and one artillery piece toward the railroad bridge at Harper's Ferry. Albert's men ran into a detachment of Confederate cavalry, who were trying to hold the bridge as a possible crossing site for the army. When the rebels spotted Cole's cavalry, they fell back across the bridge where they made a defensive stand on the Virginia side. Captain Albert remembered, quote, I had a red pair of zouave trousers on, and as sitting on our horses, with the high rocks for a background, my red trousers seemed to be an especial mark. The bullets came thick near me, striking the rocks with a chunk much like an old chew of tobacco on a board. Unquote. After a short while, their lone artillery piece arrived. 
Once the gun was deployed in high ground, they were able to drive the Confederate cavalry back to Bolivar Heights, which gave the Federal engineers enough space to safely cross the bridge with buckets of oil. They set fire to the bridge, and in a matter of minutes, it was engulfed in flames. Cole's cavalry would boast of their destruction of the bridge as a great feat. Though it denied the Confederates access to a potential crossing site, they had inadvertently done the same thing to the Army of the Potomac. Meade's exact plan had not yet been determined, but one hypothetical option would have been to move to a point on the Potomac southeast of Williamsport where they could cross the river. The bridge at Harper's Ferry was an obvious choice, but now they would need to construct a pontoon bridge if Meade chose this course of action. Meanwhile, early on the morning of the 6th, the Army of Northern Virginia was preparing to resume its march toward the Potomac. Before they were underway, paroles were offered to Union prisoners of war. Despite orders from the U.S. War Department that stated that paroles would not be recognized, some soldiers took the chance to avoid being sent to Confederate POW camps such as the infamous Libby Prison in Richmond, though once Ari Lee caught word of this, the parole ceased. It would be another miserable day for the rebel foot soldiers as they summited South Mountain and descended its western slope. Julius Leinbach of the 26th North Carolina's Moravian Band recalled, quote, As we went to the regiment, we were in the midst of an immense train of wagons, cattle, etc., pushing forward to feed the exhausted and hungry army in front. We scarcely had anything to eat. Amongst us, we had a few small pieces of silver money. We had poor success in begging or buying anything along the road. We came to one house where, for our money, the woman gave us a couple of pieces of bread, not nearly its value. This kind of aroused our dander, and some of the boys, going around the house, found the cellar door not locked. We went in and appropriated what we could find. Our stomachs and canteens relieved the milk crocks of their contents. A dish of cold meat was transferred to our haversacks, other potable edibles, while another bandsman walked off with a ham bone which he and I divided when we got back to the barn." Unquote. Lieutenant William Gordon of the 8th Virginia Infantry remembered the awful conditions of their journey to the Potomac. Quote, During all this time, the rain continued to fall. The nights were pitchy dark, the roads a sea of mud and congested with men, artillery, and wagons, but save for some occasional halts of short duration, the column never ceased to push on until Hagerstown was reached. It was a hard experience. Fatigue, want of sleep and food, wet to the skin and cold, yet there was scarcely any confusion and but little complaining. For me, everything was new, and in one of my letters dated on the 6th, I gave utterance to my feelings as follows. I'm so tired I can scarcely keep my eyes open, have been constantly on the road, the rain falling in torrents. To add to my inconvenience, my blankets and clothes have been sent off on another road, they were with Bowden's trains, and I have the prospect ahead of being compelled to live in damp, dirty clothes for many more days. It may appear grand and delightful to talk of soldiering, but the reality, sleeping in a mud hole, the rain wetting to the skin, with but a filthy saddle blanket to keep out the cold, is exactly the reverse. Unquote. Sergeant James Whitehorn of the 12th Virginia Infantry was in an ambulance that was part of the main army column heading through Monterey Pass. He was also somewhat unlucky in that his regiment was in Mahone's Brigade, which had hardly seen any action during the battle, and there were fewer men killed or wounded in that brigade than in any other in the army. While rolling along the bumpy road en route to Williamsport, a drunk straggler that had fallen behind his unit convinced the teamster driving Whitehorn's ambulance to let him hitch a ride. Whitehorn wrote, quote, 
I noticed when the driver had given the reins to his acquaintance, he reached over in the ambulance and took with him a quart coffee pot. He returned and resumed his seat in about three quarters of an hour. I heard a few subdued words and smacking of lips, and in a little while he reached over and touched me, saying, Sergeant, don't you want a drink? Well, I did not decline, as all soldiers seem to have perfect contempt for any savoring of temperance, so I took a drink and can say with truth that it was the vilest whiskey I ever drank. It had by this time gotten dark, though the moon gave us some light. We had wagons in front and wagons in the rear of us. The mules to our ambulance were terribly jaded, and every time the wagon in front stopped, our mules were only too willing to stop. But when the wagon in front moved, our mules would remain still, and as my driver was both asleep and drunk, I had to punch him and make him drive up. This I had to keep up all night, as the train of wagons were stopping every few minutes." Unquote. As I mentioned on the last episode, foraging through the Pennsylvania and Maryland countryside continued during the Confederate retreat. Captain James H. Wood, commander of Company D, 37th Virginia, Maryland Stewart's Brigade, described how they foraged on the march. Quote, I was placed in command of a detail of men and wagons and directed to make a detour to the left of the column to gather food supplies. I was provided with Confederate currency with which to pay for such supplies. My route was over a mile out and parallel with the course of the column. The well-supplied homes enabled me to soon load the wagons and get them underway on the country road that converged toward the column." Unquote. Wood's company belonged to the 2nd Corps, which put them closer to the vanguard of the Federal forces that were following them to Monterey Pass. He remembered the close run-in that his foraging detail had. Quote, I discovered a battalion of Federal cavalry in the distance, bearing down upon us. I ordered the Teamsters to move forward with all speed. We quickly reached the outer edge of the open lands and entered the thickly wooded course of the narrow road, so closely pursued that I was compelled to give battle. I had time to place my men and deliver fire at close range with signal effect on men and horses. I saw the wagons some distance to my front curving to the right, to the road entering a little valley to my right about 300 yards to the front. I now started with all possible speed with my little force toward this junction of road and valley, and almost immediately the charge up the valley began as anticipated. It was an exciting struggle." Unquote. Once again it was slow going for the Confederate infantry and artillery column as they struggled through the on and off rain and the muddy and rocky roads in the mountain pass. It took Hills and Longstreet's two corps nine hours to move far enough to allow Ewell's corps to begin their march on the 6th. That morning, Major John Warwick Daniel, General Jubal Early's assistant adjutant general, recalled seeing the army commander with an entourage of high-ranking officers. Quote, I saw General Lee who had halted with his staff and pitched his tent by the side of a little brook. He was studying a map intently, seated on a stool, in the open air, and General A.P. Hill, Early, and others were near him. It was impossible not to be struck with his calm, composed, and resolute bearing. He seemed to be entirely undisturbed by the trying scenes which he had so lately passed through, and by the still more trying ordeal through which he was now passing. He had seen the hopes of success blighted in a few hours, he had seen his gallant army twice driven back after hundreds had fallen, and he had felt that the responsibility rested on his shoulders. The enemy's cavalry had been in his rear and destroyed a large portion of his trains, and a broad river was still between him and his country. Yet with all these misfortunes weighing upon him, he was as calm as on a peaceful summer's day." Unquote. The remnants of dozens of blackened wagons, burnt by Kilpatrick's troopers the morning before, were strewn out on the roadside that the army's column was now passing. Major Daniel continued, quote, 
This was a bitter sight for many as they passed along the road, recognizing the remnants of their own wardrobes, torn garments, and the wrecks of a thousand and one articles that constitute a soldier's outfit strewed the road in profusion, unquote. Daniel also remembered Lee's words to Major Jedediah Hotchkiss, the Second Corps engineer and cartographer, quote, Tell General Yule if these people keep coming on, turn back and thresh them soundly, unquote. When Yule received Lee's message, he responded, quote, By the blessing of Providence, I will do it, unquote. The Confederates' glacial pace allowed for the Sixth Corps to keep tabs on their progress. As for his orders, General Sedgwick moved his corps closer to the rebel column, he decided to send a brigade forward to test their mettle. For this assignment, Sedgwick chose Brigadier General Thomas Neal of Howe's division. Neal was a 37-year-old Philadelphian and West Point Class of 1847 graduate. He'd served as an infantry officer for most of the pre-war years and for a short time worked as a professor at the U.S. Military Academy. He began the war as the colonel of the 23rd Pennsylvania Infantry, which he led during the Peninsula Campaign, Seven Days Battles, and the Antietam Campaign. He led his six corps brigade since the Battle of Fredericksburg. Neal's brigade, screened by Colonel John McIntosh's cavalry, came upon the Confederates early on the morning of the 6th. Dick Yule's order of march had changed slightly. Robert Rhodes's division took over the responsibility of providing the rear guard for the army as it retreated. The Union vanguard ran into the skirmishers of Brigadier General Junius Daniel's brigade. Daniel's men had suffered heavy casualties on both the first and third day of battle at Gettysburg and had been reduced to nearly half its original strength. As the Federals advanced, Daniel's skirmishers fell back closer to the main line of the brigade. In the hopes of stalling the approach of Neal's brigade, Captain James Hopkins of the 45th North Carolina was ordered to move his regiment to occupy a small knoll. Hopkins was a 29-year-old doctor that commanded Company E of the 45th North Carolina. A month prior, he was only the fifth highest ranking officer in the regiment, but their original commander died of typhoid fever earlier on the campaign, and the next three highest ranking officers were either wounded or captured during the battle. Hopkins and his Tar Heels were too late, and the Yankee infantry got to the knoll first. When a Union officer demanded that the rebels surrender, Hopkins ordered his men to, quote, fix bayonets, charge bayonets, charge, unquote. This brash move checked the advance of Neal's skirmishers, and the Yankees fell back upon their main line. The Confederates lost two men killed, two wounded, and five missing. To support Daniel's brigade, General Rhodes ordered General George Dole's Georgia brigade to advance to the right. Not trying to risk a major fight, Thomas Neal kept a safe distance from the Confederates, though he and McIntosh continued to shadow them as they made their way through Monterey Pass. The head of the rebel column reached Waynesboro, Pennsylvania early on the morning of the 6th. Private W.B. Jenkins of the 22nd Georgia, Wright's Brigade, was one of the first soldiers to arrive in the town. Afterwards, he wrote, quote, Went to a man's chicken house and brought in five chickens, and some of the men found a yearling calf, killed it and brought it in, and another soldier found a hog and was after it, and he ran right by General Wright's headquarters, and the owner of the hog was there talking to General Wright. He asked the general to make the boys let the hog alone, as that was the only one he had left. General Wright had been drinking and said to him, The boys must have that spotted hog. The soldier ran it a little way further, shot it, and killed it. He skinned it, brought it to the camp, and we had plenty to eat for a day or two. Some of the men went upstairs in a barn and they found 30 barrels of brandy hidden there. They knocked the head out of one barrel and by some means they turned it over and poured it out on John Teat of Company G and made him very drunk. 
The guards got after them while they were getting the brandy, but they saw them in time to get away, for there was wheat all around the barn as high as a man's head. They got into that and escaped. The guard didn't catch any of them. I don't suppose they tried very hard, for they wanted some of the brandy themselves, and I suppose they got it. Unquote. Citizens of Waynesboro later complained about the thievery of the Confederates as they passed through. In several of their recollections, they mentioned the large number of enslaved black men that accompanied the Confederate army during the march. Many officers sent their personal servants into the countryside to forage for food and supplies. John France, a farmer who lived outside Waynesboro, tried to hide his horses, but several slaves found them tucked away in the back of his barn and procured them for their masters. Horse theft was becoming a big problem. Despite orders to the contrary, many officers turned a blind eye to this practice during the march back. Upon Lee's arrival in Hagerstown later that day, he decided to put an end to this. He again issued orders that all horses must be paid for either with Confederate currency or with a receipt of reimbursement to be paid out by the Confederate government later. Any horses illegally obtained by infantrymen were to be turned over to the artillery. When General Ewell's corps approached Waynesboro later that day, he sent several staff officers in search of food east of the town. Lieutenant Elliot Johnston, a volunteer aide on Ewell's staff, recalled coming upon a farm occupied by an elderly couple. The couple denied that they had anything left to give, but one of the officers found a locked spokehouse. The old woman, whom Johnston described as having, quote, the eye of the tigress and voice full of vinegar, unquote, blocked the entrance and refused to move. The rebels were baffled by her boldness and weren't sure what to do. Finally, Major Campbell Brown ordered her to be physically removed and the smokehouse door to be broken down. Inside, they found bacon, 50 to 60 pounds of sausage, flour, and other miscellaneous items, which they took back to Corps headquarters. Major Brown told Lieutenant Johnson that, quote, he was never so abused in his life by the old woman, unquote. On July 6 alone, Major Samuel P. Mitchell, the chief quartermaster of Longstreet's 1st Corps, recorded that they'd requisitioned a large number of horses. General Evander Law's division quartermaster recorded that they'd forcibly purchased two horses as well as 41 bushels of corn and 55 bushels of oats. In addition, the various brigade quartermasters of Law's division claimed to have taken 130 bushels of corn, 2,100 pounds of hay, 152 bushels of oats, 50 bushels of wheat, and one horse. It was another productive day of foraging for the Confederates. But the real action of the day revolved around the opposing cavalry forces as they jockeyed for position between South Mountain and Williamsport. At 3 a.m., the buglers of Buford's division blew the call for reveille, and the troopers arose in their campsite near Frederick, Maryland. Sergeant William Henry Redmond, 12th Illinois Cavalry, Gamble's Brigade, managed to carve out enough time to write a letter to his mother before they rode off. He told her, quote, We shall leave here in a few minutes, to go where I cannot tell. I hope to fight the Rebs. I am only satisfied nowadays when I am fighting the enemy. The proper time to fight him is while he is on our northern soil. I shall kill every one of them that I can." Unquote. Redmond and the rest of Buford's troopers were destined for Williamsport, which was a nearly 30-mile ride to the northwest. After spending an hour readying themselves and their horses, Gamble, Devon, and Merritt's brigades were on their way. General Judson Kilpatrick's division was at Boonesboro, Maryland on the morning of the 6th, just about halfway between Frederick and Williamsport. 
His troopers awoke early and readied for the day's action. While making preparations, Captain Ulrich Dahlgren and his squadron arrived at Kilpatrick's headquarters. Dahlgren told the general of his attack on the vulnerable Confederate wagon train coming down the valley turnpike. If Kilpatrick hadn't already sensed an opportunity, he certainly did now. At 9 a.m., his three brigades mounted up and marched down the National Road toward Hagerstown. In the 1860s, Hagerstown was a town of just more than 4,000 residents. Its location made it a fairly important town in the eastern theater of the Civil War. Located in western Maryland at the southern end of the Cumberland Valley, it was just northeast of the Potomac and the lower end of the Shenandoah Valley. Several major railroads and regular roads ran through the town, leading to its future nickname, Hub City. Even today, it's the location of a major interstate interchange of Route 70 going east and west and 81 going north and south. During the final phase of the Gettysburg Campaign, there were several roads that were of great importance to the two armies. As discussed earlier, the main body of Lee's army reached Waynesboro in the morning of the 6th, and they would pass through the city throughout the course of the day. The most direct route to Williamsport was along the Hagerstown-Waynesboro Turnpike, and then along the Hagerstown-Williamsport Turnpike. Controlling Hagerstown was essential to the Confederates if they intended to cross the river at Williamsport. For the Federals, Hagerstown's importance was its location along the National Road. The National Road was the first federally funded interstate highway system that was built in the first half of the 19th century, and upon its completion would connect Cumberland, Maryland to Vandalia, Illinois. A series of privately funded state turnpikes would extend the National Road all the way to Baltimore. Both Buford and Kilpatrick's divisions were bivouacked on the National Road, and would utilize it to get to both Hagerstown and Williamsport. That same morning, the Confederate cavalry were in three basic locations. Four of Stuart's brigades, Chambliss, Ferguson, Jones, and Robertson's, were in the general vicinity of Leitersburg, Maryland, about six miles northeast of Hagerstown. Fitzhugh Lee and Baker's brigades were bringing up the rear of Imboden's wagon train, still in the Cumberland Valley, north of Williamsport. Finally, Imboden's independent brigade was already in the area of Williamsport. General Jeb Stuart had reached Leitersburg the night before after Chambliss and Ferguson clashed with Kilpatrick's division near Smithsburg. Upon their arrival, Stuart sent R.E. Lee a message by courier detailing the whereabouts of Kilpatrick's cavalry as well as his own. About 1 a.m., Stuart was surprised by the sudden appearance of General Grumble Jones. Stuart was under the impression that he had been captured during the fight at Monterey Pass the night before. Jones told the cavalry leader of his escape as well as the situation at Williamsport. Following their conversation, Jones rejoined his brigade. Around 6 a.m., he received a message from Lee and began to issue orders for the day. Chambliss, Robertson, and Ferguson's brigades would all move toward Hagerstown, while Jones's brigade would move a few miles to the south at Funkstown. If everything went as expected, both sides would likely collide in the area of Hagerstown and Williamsport later that day. The morning of the 6th was marked by more rain that made the day's march miserable once again. Buford's men arrived at Middletown in the mid-morning, and then moved toward Turner's Gap. By noon, they reached Boonesboro. Kilpatrick's command had gotten about as far as Funkstown when a courier from Buford arrived. Kilpatrick rode back to Boonesboro to confer with him. Two division commanders came up with a plan for the day's action. Kilpatrick would attack Hagerstown, and Buford would move on Williamsport. The former would provide help to the latter if necessary. A few hours before, Confederate cavalry of Colonel John R. Chambliss and General Beverly Robertson arrived at Hagerstown. 
Chambliss ordered Colonel Richard Beale and Colonel James Davis of the 9th and 10th Virginia Cavalry Regiments to hold the town. Barricades were quickly thrown up and vedettes sent forward in the direction of Funkstown. Around 1 p.m., the Confederates were alerted to the approach of Union Cavalry. Colonel Nathaniel Richmond's brigade and Captain Dahlgren's squadron closed in on the outnumbered rebel force. When Colonel Chambliss was alerted to the approach of Richmond's brigade, he sent couriers requesting assistance to General Stewart. Stewart responded by ordering Ferguson's brigade to move toward Hagerstown. Grumble Jones was already moving toward Funkstown. He hoped that if they could hold off the Federals long enough, Jones's troopers could get behind them and cut off their route of escape. As Colonel Richmond prepared to assault Hagerstown from the south, Ferguson's brigade, with Stewart accompanying, arrived from the east. Lieutenant Samuel Elder, commander of Battery E, 4th U.S. Artillery, deployed his six 12-pounder Parrot rifles and they opened fire on the Rebel cavalry. Stewart responded by ordering two guns of Captain Robert Chew's Battery of Horse Artillery to unlimber and return fire. W.W. Jacobs, a Pennsylvanian who happened to be in Hagerstown visiting friends, climbed to the top of the Eagle Hotel where he could get a bird's eye view of the action. He described the artillery fire that preceded the Union attack. Quote, the flying shells, which appeared like pigeons sailing in the air, reflecting the golden sun as they whirled and twisted in their angry flight, some bursting high in the air, others falling near their mark. Unquote. Both sides thundered away while dismounted skirmishers traded shots on the outskirts of town. The 1st Vermont and 5th New York Cavalry Regiments, aided by Elder's Battery, were enough to keep Ferguson's troopers from stopping the main body of Richmond's brigade from attacking the town. In Hagerstown, the 9th and 10th Virginia Cavalry Regiments braced themselves for the oncoming assault. Captain Dahlgren, leading his detachment of U.S. regulars, with additional companies from the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, prepared to charge. Citizens of Hagerstown took cover as best they could, though some, like W.W. Jacobs, hoped to catch a glimpse of the action, and even a few participated. Just before the fight began, Captain Frank Bond and his company of the 1st Maryland Cavalry Battalion arrived at Hagerstown. He rode to the barricades where he briefly conferred with Colonel James Davis. Bond hoped to convince him to combine forces and attack the Federals before they themselves were attacked. Davis, who only had orders to hold his position, would not order a charge. So Bond led his company of Marylanders back into the town and off to a side street where they waited for an opportunity to strike. Finally, around 2.30pm, Captain Dahlgren, with three squadrons of U.S. and Pennsylvania cavalry, charged into town, sabers drawn. Colonel Beale and his 9th Virginia were quickly driven back toward the barricades manned by the 10th Virginia. The defenders were overrun by the retreating Confederates and the hard-charging Yankees. Colonel Davis attempted to rally his regiment, but his horse was shot out from under him and he was pinned underneath the dead animal. He was eventually taken prisoner by one of Dahlgren's troopers. The Virginians were struggling to put up a fight as they were pushed up Potomac Street toward this town square. Captain Frank Bond realized the moment for his troopers had come. He yelled, quote, by fours, right about, charge, unquote. In column of fours, the Marylanders charged out from the side street into the main thoroughfare, crashing into Dahlgren's command. Mounted soldiers clashed, firing pistols and dueling with sabers. W.W. Jacobs described the intense fight, quote, The cunning and slashing was beyond description. Here, right before and underneath us, the deadly conflict was waged in a hand-to-hand -hand combat with steel blades circling, waving, parrying, thrusting, and cutting, some reflecting the bright sunlight, others crimsoned with human gore. While the discharge of pistols and carbines was terrific, and the smoke through which we now gaze down through and on the scene below, the screams and yells of the wounded and dying, mingled with cheers and commands, the crashing together of the horses and fiery flashes of small arms presented a scene such as words cannot portray." Unquote. 
An unnamed citizen of Hagerstown, armed with a musket, attempted to join in on the fight, but was quickly gunned down by a Confederate trooper. John Simple, a local artist, tried to find a good spot to watch the battle from the top floor of a building. Not long after, Private Samuel St. Clair of the 18th Pennsylvania recalled hearing a woman scream, quote, Johnny is killed! Johnny is killed! Unquote. Simple was the recipient of an errant bullet which hit him in the head and killed him instantly. In addition to Bond's company of Marylanders, General Beverly Robertson's Demi Brigade of North Carolinians arrived and joined in the fight. Captain Dahlgren rode back toward the reserves of the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry and personally led Company D into the fight. Dahlgren ordered the troopers to dismount and advance on foot. When they were close enough, he ordered them to fire a volley with their sharps carbines, which wounded many of the rebel defenders. Despite mounting casualties, the Confederates kept up a hot fire as they continued falling back toward the Zion Reformed Church, just north of the middle of town. Dahlgren continued to ride his horse, urging his dismounted troopers forward until he was struck in the leg by a bullet. He initially believed it to be a minor wound, but after a few minutes of blood loss, came to the realization that he was in serious need of medical care, so he rode back toward the main body of the brigade south of Hagerstown. Colonel Richmond worried that the momentum of their attack was waning, so he sent in additional reinforcements from the 18th Pennsylvania, 1st West Virginia, and 1st Vermont Cavalry Regiments. These fresh squadrons joined the melee, but urban combat then, as it is now, is incredibly difficult, and typically the advantage goes to the defender. Every street, every alley, every building became immersed in the fight. Gradually, the hand-to-hand -hand action died down, and both sides gathered their casualties and regrouped, while snipers traded shots. But it didn't take long for the fighting in the streets of Hagerstown to re-escalate. W.W. Jacobs had left his perch at the Eagle Hotel and made his way down to the streets to aid in assisting wounded soldiers. He got caught up in the fight and picked up a carbine from a fallen soldier and joined in the action. The Battle of Hagerstown had been ongoing for several hours at this point. Though the Federal troopers had gained the upper hand early in the fight, neither side was able to maintain momentum for long, typical of cavalry battles. Before the action started, Colonel Chambliss had been told that infantry reinforcements were on the way. His patience paid off. General Alfred Iverson and his Tar Heel Brigade came onto the scene. If you'll recall from two episodes back, Iverson's brigade had been ordered to move out ahead of the army on July 4th when they were given the impossible of task of marching from Gettysburg to Monterey Pass, in time to block Kilpatrick's division from attacking the vulnerable wagon train. They'd failed to stop the Union cavalry at South Mountain, but their arrival at Hagerstown on July 6th would mark the turning point in the battle. Iverson's brigade had lost more than half of its soldiers on July 1st, but even with only about 600 men, they were enough to precipitate the retreat of Richmond's brigade from Hagerstown. As the rebel infantry advanced, federal troopers moved southward down Potomac Street to their main lines below the town. While they fell back, a local girl shot and killed a retreating Yankee trooper. Hagerstown, like many places in Maryland, had divided loyalties. The Confederates now had the upper hand. The bulk of Richmond's brigade had been thrown into the fight and he had no fresh reserves to draw upon. Ferguson's brigade, which had been held in check for most of the day, renewed their push. The Union cavalry was now outnumbered and overwhelmed on multiple fronts. They would have to perform a fighting retreat as Stuart's horse soldiers chased them out of Hagerstown. Around the same time that Kilpatrick's attack was dying down, a second battle around Williamsport had just begun. General John and Bowden had anticipated an assault against the vulnerable wagons gathered by the river and still rolling down the Cumberland Valley Turnpike into Williamsport. After his arrival there on the 5th and all throughout the early hours of the 6th, he organized his forces into a semicircle to cover all approaches to the town. 
and Bowdoin's command included two mounted regiments, one company of partisan rangers, and a battery of artillery. He had been given an assortment of additional artillery pieces that in total added up to at least 23 guns. Additionally, he received a small number of infantry reinforcements. The 58th Virginia and 54th North Carolina Infantry Regiments and Company F of the 21st Virginia. All of these units were part of the 2nd Corps and had participated in the 2nd Battle of Winchester, fought some three weeks ago. The 58th Virginia of Extra Billy Smith's Brigade and 54th North Carolina of Colonel Isaac Avery's Brigade, both of Jubal Early's division, had been detached from their respective brigades and were ordered to escort Union prisoners of war to Richmond following the capture of Winchester. After marching up the Shenandoah Valley to Stanton, they accompanied the POWs all the way to Richmond by rail. They took another train back to Stanton and then marched back down the valley with the ordnance wagons that Lee had ordered up. Company F of the 21st Virginia, part of General John M. Jones's brigade of Allegheny Johnson's division, had similarly been detached following the fight at Winchester, and had spent time gathering up stragglers and deserters, with the intention of bringing them back to the army. These reinforcements were ferried across the Potomac, along with the reserve ammunition trains. While it wasn't much, any amount of veteran infantry would be useful to help Imboden bolster his three-mile-long defensive line. Imboden would later recall, quote, Early on the morning of the 6th, I received intelligence of the approach from Frederick of a large body of cavalry with three full batteries of six rifled guns. These were the divisions of Generals Buford and Kilpatrick and Huey's Brigade of Gregg's Division, consisting, as I afterward learned, of 23 regiments of cavalry and 18 guns, a total force of about 7,000 men. I immediately posted my guns on the hills that concealed the town and dismounted my own command to support them, and ordered as many of the wagoners to be formed as could be armed with the guns of the wounded that we had brought from Gettysburg. In this, I was greatly aided by Colonel J.L. Black of South Carolina, Captain J.F. Hart commanding a battery from the same state, Colonel William Aylett of Virginia, and other wounded officers. By noon, about 700 wagoners were organized into companies of 100 each and officered by wounded line officers, commissaries, and quartermasters. About 250 of these were given to Colonel Aylett on the right next to the river, about as many under Colonel Black on the left, and the residue were used as skirmishers. My own command proper was held well in hand in the center. Unquote. As Imboden described, wounded and sick officers who'd been waiting to cross the swollen river were called upon to organize any auxiliaries like white teamsters and cooks, along with any wounded or sick soldiers that could fight, into an ad hoc force to further bolster the defensive line. Captain James Hart, who commanded a battery of horse artillery in the defenses of Williamsport, later nicknamed them Company Q. This brought Imboden's total force up to about 3,000 soldiers and 23 guns. They were still greatly outnumbered. Buford's division alone had around 4,000 troopers, but the Confederates were at least somewhat rested and their flanks were secure with their left anchored on Conococheague Creek and the Potomac on their right. And as Imboden later wrote, quote, Every man in my command understood that if we did not repulse the enemy, we should all be captured and General Lee's army be ruined by lack of transportation, unquote. Buford's troopers reached Kilpatrick's bivouac site near Boonesboro right about the time that the latter general's division was attacking Hagerstown. After a quick pit stop where they ate lunch, drank coffee, and attended to their horses, they remounted and started on their march to Williamsport. It would be another 10-plus miles in the saddle before they reached the Confederate defenses. During their march, they crossed the Antietam Creek near the old battlefield of the previous summer. Along the route, they could see unearthed remains of horses and soldiers. 
Around 5 p.m., they neared St. James College, a private Episcopal boarding school founded in 1842 by John P. Kerfoot. Coincidentally, several members of both armies were alumni of the school, including Captain James Brethid, a battery commander in Stewart's horse artillery, Major Osman Latrobe, Longstreet's inspector general, and Colonel Samuel Carroll, commander of the Gibraltar Brigade and Hayes' division of the Union 2nd Corps. Rebel vedettes, which had been posted at St. James College, rode back about four and a half miles to Williamsport in order to alert Imboden about the approach of Federal cavalry. The mix of cavalry, infantry, artillery, quartermasters, teamsters, and other auxiliaries prepared to be attacked. The advanced skirmishers of Buford's division drove Imboden skirmishers back toward Williamsport along the Boonesboro Road until they reached the main lines. Once the Yankee cavalry was within range, Confederate rifled guns opened fire. Buford directed General Wesley Merritt to deploy his brigade to the right of the Boonesboro Road, and Colonel William Gamble to the left. Colonel Thomas Devon's brigade was held in reserve. The Yankees dismounted, and skirmishers pressed forward on foot until they came within carbine range of the Confederate line. The rebel gunners fired their artillery pieces rapidly as Merritt's 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry closed in on their position. When the Yankees were within range, the rebel artillerymen switched to canister rounds, which had a devastating effect on the attackers. In some cases, their rate of fire was so fast that they were beginning to run out of ammunition only a few minutes into the fight. When the ordnance dried up, gun crews even loaded their cannons with iron bars to keep them firing. Bowden also decided to use a bit of trickery to deceive the Union forces of their true strength. As Merritt's men advanced toward him, he ordered his infantry to advance forward. They would use the natural terrain, the misty conditions, and the gunpowder smoke that shrouded the battlefield to fall back without being seen. Then they would be ordered to move forward again. This ruse gave the impression that their infantry line was stronger and deeper than it really was. It also caused the Federals to act with more caution than they probably should have. On the Union left, Colonel Gamble spotted a vulnerable column of wagons coming into Williamsport. They were teams of foragers that had been going through the area in search of food and supplies and failed to get back to safety in time. Gamble ordered the 3rd Indiana Cavalry to attack the exposed train and the Hoosiers charged forward, pistols and carbines blazing. Confederate quartermasters and teamsters were in a bad spot, with nowhere to run. The Indiana troopers captured or set fire to at least two dozen wagons, captured a hundred horses and mules, and 46 men were taken prisoner. The rest of Gamble's brigade dismounted, with the 8th Illinois leading the brigade in a skirmish line. Lieutenant John Califf's Battery A unlimbered on high ground at Rose Hill Manor, a farm owned by a wealthy landowner named Otho Williams. Califf's vantage point gave him a view of the town and the hundreds of wagons parked near the riverbank. They fired shells at both the Confederate defenders and the mass of wagons. Black teamsters ran for cover, many of whom dove into the Potomac to avoid the exploding shells. Captain Charles Banson, a quartermaster in the 2nd North Carolina Battalion, recalled, quote, I slipped away and stayed close to one of our batteries while watching the fight, but I found it rather unhealthy, for six shells fell within 20 feet of me, and accordingly vamoosed from that section of the country, unquote. Captain William Pegram, who commanded Company F of the 21st Virginia Infantry, saw the 8th Illinois Cavalry coming upon Rose Hill Manor. Pegram decided to advance his small command to capture and occupy the farm buildings. He ordered Company F forward at the double quick. The Virginians jogged forward onto the Williams farm, shells bursting overhead and bullets from carbines whizzing by. Major Benjamin Eshelman of the Washington Artillery ordered Captain Merritt B. Miller to move his four guns forward in support of Pegram. 
Pegram's men were about to collide with the 8th Illinois skirmishers, led by Major William Medill. Medill, a 27-year-old Ohio native, had worked as a journalist before the war. His older brother Joseph was an owner and managing editor of the Chicago Tribune and was active in Republican politics. After the war, he was elected mayor of Chicago in 1871. Both brothers were abolitionists. Major Medill, the only man on horseback amongst the skirmishers, yelled at his troopers, Come on, boys! He ordered his men to fire their carbines, and he himself borrowed a sharps rifle and fired it at Pegram's Virginians. He urged his men to advance. Confederates returned fire. Medill was hit in the abdomen by a miniball. He was taken off the field and died of his wound ten days later. Not long after, Captain Pegram was shot and killed instantly. The Virginians continued to hold their position at the farm for another hour or so, but eventually they were forced to fall back by the bulk of Gamble's brigade and artillery fire from Califf's battery. Merritt's brigade had stalled on the right, so Imboden, utilizing his interior lines, shifted troops from that section of the line to that facing Gamble's brigade, which was still advancing. Just as things were getting tight for the Confederates, the tide began to turn. As Imboden remembered, quote, Night was now rapidly approaching, when a messenger from Fitzhugh Lee arrived to urge me to hold my own, as he would be up in a half hour with 3,000 fresh men. Unquote. At long last, help was on the way. General Fitzhugh Lee and Colonel Lawrence Baker's cavalry brigades were only a few miles to the north and riding to the rescue. More ammunition was brought up from the reserve ordnance wagons, which allowed the Confederate batteries to keep firing. And Bowdoin was now confident of victory, so he ordered an advance on the right with the hopes of dislodging Gamble's brigade from the Williams farm. But the Illinoisans, New Yorkers, and Hoosiers would not budge. Now it's time to check back in with Kilpatrick's division, because this is right around the time that they were retreating from Hagerstown. Judson Kilpatrick had heard the growing fight around Williamsport, so he sent General George Custer to lead his brigade in that direction to make sure their flank was secure during the retreat. Custer arrived east of Williamsport along the Hagerstown Road just as the battle was winding down. The Michigan Brigade came upon the right flank of Merritt's brigade as it was retreating. Hundreds of rebel reinforcements came onto the field and Merritt immediately ordered his men to fall back. Custer, reckless as ever, tried to get his men into position to charge, but shells came flying into their ranks. The increased rubble artillery fire killed and wounded several men, and just as Custer was ordering the attack, word came from Kilpatrick to retreat. Once Merritt's brigade had given way, Buford knew the rest of his line was untenable, and ordered Gamble to fall back as well. Both brigades would retreat back as Devon's brigade acted as their rear guard. Both Union Cavalry Divisions would fall back on the routes they'd taken earlier that day, which would mean they would converge on Jones's crossroads. And Bowdoin would not order a pursuit, content with the victory they'd already achieved. As Captain James Hart remembered, quote, There had been glory enough won, and neither the wagoners nor Company Q felt any desire to pursue horsemen in search of more. The wagons were safe, and the Teamsters went back to feed their mules and talk over the wonderful victory. Company Q sought shelter from the drizzling rain under the grateful cover of a wagon, where his repose was undisturbed for the remainder of the night. Unquote. However, Stuart kept up the pressure on Kilpatrick's rear guard. Richardson's brigade would perform a fighting retreat as Chambliss, Robertson, and Ferguson attacked from the direction of Hagerstown. And then all of a sudden, the brigade of Grumble Jones was coming from the direction of Funkstown. Richmond ordered the 1st West Virginia and Elder's Battery to make a stand in order to buy time for the rest of the division. The sun had set by this point, and light was quickly fading. Colonel Lunsford Lomax of the 11th Virginia spurred his men into a charge. As they closed in, Elder's battery unleashed canister fire, killing and wounding many. 
The line broke and fell back, but Lomax rallied them and ordered another charge. Elder's battery had enough time to limber up and fall back a few hundred yards where they redeployed. When they were in position, the Mountaineers fell back. They continued this until the rest of Grumble Jones' brigade arrived along with artillery support. Facing pressure from three sides, the Union defenders commenced a full retreat. Confederates kept up their pursuit in the dark. Their artillery continued to fire until they could not tell friend from foe, but by 10 p.m. the fight was over. Both sides had taken fairly heavy casualties. In the fight at Hagerstown, the Confederates had suffered at least 200 men killed, wounded, or captured. Kilpatrick reported that 15 men were killed, 52 wounded, and 108 missing after the battle, but that seems like an undercount. Buford similarly posted low casualty figures that don't seem to match up with descriptions of the battle, with 9 killed in action, 20 wounded, and 43 unaccounted for. That was less than the 125 men that Imboden claimed to have lost in the fight. In addition to the loss of men, hundreds of horses were dead as a result of combat or exhaustion. Colonel Pinnock Huey's brigade alone had lost 144 men and 200 horses over the last two days. July 6 turned out to be a fairly significant day. I'd argue that between the end of the battle and the end of the campaign, the six produced the most meaningful consequences. Filed the day under big missed opportunities for the Union. With a larger force, they were unable to accomplish either of their objectives. They'd pushed the rebels back at Hagerstown, but could not secure the town and were driven back in retreat. Buford's men had come within a mile of the Confederate reserve trains, but could not break Imboden's eclectic bunch. In both cases, the rebels were incredibly lucky in terms of the timing of reinforcements. That was probably the most significant factor in the Confederate victory. Both Union divisions were also incredibly run down, particularly Buford's. The long marches through poor weather and bad roads with low supplies took a toll on them. Inversely, the Confederates were already at, or much closer to, the points where the fighting occurred. The old adage of getting there first with the most men turned out to be very true in this case. Just how close the Union cavalry came to securing a victory is debatable. General John Imboden held the belief that they'd survived an incredibly close call, and later wrote, quote, My whole force engaged, wagoners included, did not exceed 3,000 men. The ruse practiced by showing a formidable line on the left, then withdrawing it to fight on the right, together with our numerous artillery, 23 guns, led to the belief that our force was much greater. By extraordinary good fortune, we had thus saved all of General Lee's trains. A bold charge at any time before sunset would have broken our feeble lines, and then we should all have fallen an easy prey to the Federals. Unquote. Buford and Kilpatrick failed to properly coordinate their actions on the 6th, but this was due in large part to the fact that they had vastly different starting positions that morning. Had Buford's three brigades been closer to Boonesboro, they might have been able to attack earlier in the day before the Confederate reinforcements could arrive, but logistically this would have been next to impossible considering how far of a distance Buford's men had to travel over the past two days. Additional cavalry support from either John Irvin Gregg's brigade, which was off in Pennsylvania, or McIntosh's brigade, still trailing the rebel army through Monterey Pass, would have been useful in the Williamsport-Hagerstown fight, certainly of more use there than what they were actually doing on the 6th. Before I end the episode, I want to catch up with the rest of the two armies to see where they ended July 6th. After the Federal troopers were driven out of the area of Williamsport and Hagerstown, the Confederate wagons resumed their journey into the former. By the evening of the 6th, there were some four to 5,000 wagons and somewhere in the ballpark of 30,000 horses and mules in and around Williamsport. The main body of the Rebel Army continued its march with little stoppage during the day. The head of the infantry column reached Hagerstown that night. 
James Longstreet's 1st Corps was now first in the order of march, Hill's 2nd, and Ewell's Corps still bringing up the rear. By the evening of the 6th, they were all on the western side of South Mountain, stretched out between Hagerstown and Waynesboro. General Robert E. Lee would spend the night at Hagerstown, making preparations for the next day's march. By now, he'd learned of the river conditions. Lee could only hope that a respite from the rain would come, which would allow the water levels to drop so his army could cross. If not, they would have to construct a new pontoon bridge, potentially with the entire Army of the Potomac bearing down on them. By the night of the 6th, General George G. Meade was finally convinced that Lee's army was retreating to Virginia. The news from Sedgwick that they'd left Monterey Pass and reports of the fighting near Williamsport gave him the confidence to issue marching orders for the next day. All seven Army Corps would march southward and concentrate around Middletown, Maryland. From there, they would cross South Mountain using various passes. The goal was to reach Boonesboro by the 8th. The one exception to this was General Thomas Neal, who, in addition to his own brigade, was given command of McIntosh's Cavalry Brigade and a battery of artillery. After marching through Monterey Pass, Neal's Light Division, as it was termed, would continue to pursue the Confederates, harassing them when they could, but mostly just keeping tabs and reporting their observations back to Army headquarters. The great race between the two armies would truly begin on July 7th, but by this point Lee's army was in a much better position, less than a day's march from the river. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today. On the next episode, I'll cover the continuing retreat and pursuit of Lee and Meade's respective armies, as well as some more cavalry battles. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. History.